I don't know about you, but it is great to be here this morning, to have a day of rest. For me personally, Christmas, even when it's great, is exhausting. And unlike Kurt, I'm not all that excited about New Year's. Sure, I'm excited about the parties, celebrations, maybe the goals and the things to come. But here's the problem. On New Year's Eve, when the clock strikes midnight, our calendars will turn from 2019 to 2020. And I will have to stop and acknowledge that in this calendar year, I will be turning 30 years old. Some of you may laugh at such a young age, but I feel like I've lived a whole lot of life. Maybe not enough life for you to write an entire book about the things that I've done. Maybe not even a blog post for that matter. But I'm confident in this. If you interviewed everyone here, my family and my friends, you could find something significant that I've said to fill a single tweet. 140 characters, 280 characters, it doesn't matter. I think you could do it. Yet in the 30 years prior to Jesus' ministry beginning, we only have 70 characters worth of things that he said. That's spaces, periods, and everything included. That's all we have recorded. 15 Greek words of things that Jesus said prior to his ministry beginning. You see, the early church didn't really like that. Some of the people there decided that they were going to record their own stories or things they thought might have happened. A few of these examples were found in the Gospel of Thomas, which is not a part of our scriptures, but I thought I'd share a few of those with you. One of those stories shows Jesus playing with clay birds with his friends. And Jesus uses his power to turn those clay birds into real birds, and they amazed as they watched them fly away. Or Jesus, being a good son, helped his father building a couch. When they cut a piece too short, instead of going to get another one, Jesus lengthened that piece for him. But there's also some weird passages. Like when Jesus was playing with pools of water, and a kid came over and messed up those pools, he cursed the kid to death. Now, it's clear that these stories do not align with our scripture, and in fact are fictional. But they do leave us wondering, and would love to know, what was Jesus doing for those 30 years? But they should also make us take a serious look at the single story we have regarding Jesus as a boy, and wonder why the author included it. Since we're going to be jumping into the middle of the passage, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background of this story. We'll be looking at the Gospel of Luke, and Luke, the author of that text, was a traveling companion of Paul. That means he would have been in Jerusalem at the time of Paul's imprisonment and would have been able to interview many of the individuals who eyewitness, were eyewitnesses to this story. Luke also tells us clearly that his audience was a man named Theophilus, who we believe was a real man, not just the meaning of his name, friend of God, as a general title. Luke also clearly states the purpose of his book, when he says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In short, Luke is trying to help Theophilus, an uncertain man, become certain about Jesus. In the immediate context of our story, Jesus is traveling with his parents to Jerusalem at the age of 12. You see, turning 13, not 30, was a significant year for Jewish boys. At 13, they would become sons of the covenant and responsible for their actions. This trip would have been a time of preparation for Jesus, where his parents would have taught him about the things of God. 
So with that context in mind, I'll ask you to turn to Luke chapter 2. It's on page 858 of your pew Bibles. And when you found your place, please stand with me as we read together the word of God. Beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, and they, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. You selected this single story from the boyhood life of Jesus. May you help us to see the purpose of this passage and help to apply it to our, our lives. May everyone here see clearly the truths of your word and not my words. And may you be glorified through everything we read and study today. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so how does this story compare to the fictional stories that we heard about earlier? You see, I think those, those fictional stories followed a simple logic. If Jesus is God, God is powerful, then boy Jesus must have been powerful, and people must have been amazed at the things he did. Our passage follows a different logic. In fact, it's kind of confusing. Rather than showing Jesus do powerful things, we see Jesus doing something that we're still confused by today. And in that thing, his mother asked him simple questions, and he responded, and she was still confused. Tim Keller even went so far as to say the core theme of this passage is to show that Jesus is confusing. While it may seem odd to include a story about Jesus being confusing to a man who is already uncertain about God, I believe that we will see in this passage that Luke included this story for three reasons. First, even when we are confused, Jesus was certain of his identity and purpose. Second, we can expect to be confused about Jesus in our life. But third, there is hope for us in the midst of that confusion. Let's start by looking at Jesus' statement or question for that matter. I want to look at three parts of this question, focusing on the second question. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? First of all, what kind of question or statement is this? 
we have to be careful not to let our loose use of the words must or need or have to slip into this passage. The Greek word day here is best translated as it is necessary or it must happen. This is not a statement of preference that Jesus would rather be in, his te- in the temple than with his parents. Rather, this is a strong statement of identity. Jesus is saying here, based on who I am, I have to be in my father's house. But who is Jesus saying that he is? Jesus uses the statement, my father. Notice, first of all, that he's correcting his mother's use of the word father. Mary said to him, your father and I were searching for you. Jesus responded by saying, my father's house. That statement is correcting Mary's use of father and making clear that Jesus' relationship to God is so unique that it takes priority over his relationship to Joseph and Mary. The uniqueness of this relationship is further highlighted by the statement, my father, which Joachim Jeremiah studied at length. He searched all the known writings of of Jewish individuals addressing God directly. And it is his conclusion that prior to the 10th century AD, there is not a single example of a person calling Jesus my father. That means in the entire Old Testament, we don't see anyone calling God my father. While God does call himself the father of Israel, he never refers to himself as a father of one individual. That means that not Moses, not Aaron, or David, or anyone else referred to or could refer to God as my father. Jesus is saying strongly here, I am not just another prophet, I'm not just another priest, or I'm not just another king. Jesus is saying, I am all of those things, but I am the Son of God. But what does that mean for his purpose? Some of your translations may finish the sentence a little bit differently. The common ones read, I must be in my father's house. However, the Greek word house is not in the text at all. Many commentators, including Calvin and Luther, believe that this is best translated or understood as Jesus saying, I have to be about the things of my Father. They believe this, that we shouldn't avoid, we should avoid not narrowing the meaning of this passage too far by translating it as just the house of God. But through this statement, it is clear that based on who Jesus is, he knows for certain that he must do the will of his Father. Through these two simple statements, Jesus is clear of the fact that at age 12, he is certain that he is the Son of God, and because of that, he must do the will of his Father. But here's the most magnificent part of this passage. What does Jesus at 12 years old do with that knowledge? In verse 51, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. While the fictional stories we read highlighted Jesus' use and even abuse of his power, our story today highlights the fact that Jesus was certain of his identity, and with that, he submitted. This story shows the earliest examples of Jesus' attitude that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, when he states, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, this passage is showing that Jesus is certain of who he is, and that certainty which was before the foundation of the world led him ultimately to be born, led him to submit to his parents, and also led him to the cross for our salvation. Yet consider this in the story, that Luke also highlights or makes key the reactions of those people around him. Let's look at those two groups of people. First of all, the teachers. These teachers would have studied the Old Testament from a very young age. They would have studied the law and the prophets and known them better than anyone else in all of Israel. If anyone else should have been able to identify the coming Messiah, it was these individuals. Second group is Mary and Joseph. Both of them heard proclaimed from an angel that Jesus was to be and was the Son of God. In fact, Mary carried Jesus for nine months knowing that she had not had relations with any man. Yet despite their qualifications, despite their, their experiences of the Lord, look at the words that, that Luke uses to describe their reactions. He says they were astonished, they were overwhelmed, they were anxious or distressed, and they didn't understand or they were confused. So why would Luke include a story about people having those reactions when writing to a man who is uncertain about God. I believe that Luke included this story to show Theophilus and to show us that even those most likely to understand or recognize Jesus were confused by him as well. See, if we look at our own lives, no matter how much we study the word of God, no matter how much we grow in our faith, I believe if we're honest with ourselves, we still find ourselves confused by God or what he is doing. The reason for this is simple. God is an infinite God as we know. Therefore, we cannot know him exhaustively. Yet God has made himself known to us. So how do we misunderstand him? I think if we look at these two groups, we'll see two common reasons we misunderstand Jesus. First, the teachers. Simply put, he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a political Messiah and therefore crucified him, ironically making him the Messiah that they needed. Second group of Mary and Joseph, they believed the angel. Yet because they had an imperfect understanding of what that meant, they misunderstood what Jesus was doing. And because of those two things, when Jesus said and did things to them, they were confused and even hurt by the things that he did. For each of us, I think we have similar questions to those, but they may look different for each and every one of us. If you're not a believer, maybe you're asking yourself the question, am I really to believe that God became man and died for me? Or maybe you have common questions of faith. Can we really trust the word of God? How do I know what the Lord wants me to do in my life? Or maybe there's situations in our lives that we can't understand. We prayed for them this morning, and I can look around our congregation 
and see countless stories that I don't have a good answer for, that I don't understand, and that I'm confused about. Why do we have members battling cancer? Why do we have healthy young men jumping through hoops to get surgery after surgery? Why do we have marriages between faithful believers that seem to be at conflict? For me personally, I've asked the question for so long, why would the Lord take the mother from a young boy at the age of 13 years old? You see, I don't have the answer to those questions. But together with Mary, we are asking Jesus, why have you treated me so? Yet this story today reminds us that we are neither the first nor the last ones that will have these questions. Christianity Today wrote an article about doubt among teens. And in their study, this is what they stated. According to our study, which looked at 500 youth group graduates, over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubt about, about faith. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult. Yet these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were directly correlated with greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that's to toxic to faith, it's silence. You see, if we believe that no one else is having these questions, or these doubts, or these feelings, we will keep silent. And in our silence, we will miss the opportunity to grow in our knowledge of who God is and what he is doing. In fact, this passage even shows us that in his humanity, Jesus had to grow in his knowledge of wisdom and the things of God. But Luke also shows us how Jesus grew in his knowledge. Look at verse 46. It states that Jesus did four things. He sat with teachers, he asked questions, he listened, and he gave answers. See, it's clear that Jesus was not silent about his questions, but he went to teachers and he asked them. For three straight days in the temple, he learned all that he could from these teachers, and he likely did this year after year for the rest of his life. But Jesus also took this method of teaching and he applied it to his life with his disciples. For the, life of his, for the time with his disciples, the three years, he sat with them, and he lived life directly with them, and he taught them. He created a place where they could ask questions, where they could listen, and where when he was asked questions, they could also give answers to those questions. You see, here at Redeemer, we seek to model that way that Jesus taught, living life together with each other and creating a space where we can do these things. We believe that everyday opportunities for us are opportunities to learn more about who God is and what he is doing. We believe that God can use community groups gathering together, eating to dinner together, taking walks together, mourning together, celebrating together. And in all of those things, if we are together, we can begin to ask each other questions about what we're experiencing. We can listen to each other. And ultimately, we can give an answer to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In all those moments, whether they are confusing or not, we believe that God will use them to grow us in our knowledge of him. Yet I've found that we have a common reason why we don't do this. 
See, oftentimes I believe that I am not the right person to help teach or grow you. Or maybe I believe that you're not the right person to teach or grow me. This might manifest itself in different ways. Maybe we're picky about our preachers or we don't like our community group, whatever it might be. Consider this fact, that the men who Jesus sat under here and learned from and asked questions, these were the very men who would later crucify him for not being the savior that they wanted. This makes abundantly clear that it is not the faithfulness or qualifications of those that we sit around or learn from, but rather it's the faithfulness of God that will grow us in our knowledge of him and who he is and what he is doing. So if you're feeling confused by Christ or what he's doing in your life, don't be silent. Join the body of Christ in asking questions, in giving answers to each other of the hope that we have, and listening to one of the others that we may grow in our knowledge of Christ. Yet this story also gives us hope that in doing all of these things, we will even be able to treasure times of confusion. Look at verse 51. It states, And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. Many scholars believe that this is Jesus' way of, or Luke's way of saying, that he gathered this story directly from Mary when he was in Jerusalem. So what changed for Mary? How did she go from being confused, overwhelmed, distressed, and even hurt by the things that Jesus did to treasuring them in her heart? See, I think it's simple that in those roughly 40 years between this story and her sitting down with Luke to share this story, Mary had grown in her knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I bet there were many more stories of Mary feeling this way, of feeling confused, frustrated, hurt, or any other emotion. And I even bet that as Mary watched her son hang on the cross, she felt confused, astonished, and even hurt by what she saw. Yet when she witnessed her son raised from the dead, and was able to see the wounds on his hands, his side, and his feet, she more clearly understood who he was and what he came to accomplish. So what changed for Mary? Simply put, she could now put this story and all of their stories of confusion in the context of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And together with the early church, Mary could begin to look back on these stories and see them in the light of who Jesus truly was and what he did. You see, for us, the cross shows us the moments of confusion, moments of hurt, and moments of pain are actually the Lord at work, doing immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And yet because of the cross, if we believe in Jesus from today and for all of eternity, we will get to continue to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done. And in that time, we will get to explore how wide and how deep and how high the love of Christ is for us. So Redeemer, when, not if you are feeling confused about who Jesus is or what he is doing in your life, remember this story and remember that while you may be confused, 
our Savior was certain of his purpose, and he is still certain of his purpose to this day. Second, you are neither the first nor will you be the last person to be confused about who Jesus is. But don't keep silent. And finally, together, we can ask each other questions as the body of Christ. And because of the cross, we have hope that our moments of confusion will turn into times that we treasure because we will be able to see that they were truly moments where God was at work in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you are an infinite God. If you were not infinite, you would not be God, and we could fully understand or comprehend you. Yet you have made yourself known, and you've provided the body of Christ to help us grow in our understanding of who you are and what you are doing. So, Father, be with us for each of us in the midst of our confusion. Help us to bear those burdens together in the confusion and hurt we may be experiencing. And that through those moments, we'll be able to look back on them and treasure those moments as your good work. May you be honored and glorified through all that we experience in our life, and may we give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.